So welcome and good morning to all of you people who have been here this morning. Those of you who are here may recognize me because my wife Ginger and I have been attending for, I don't know, about a year or so now. And uh, I'm David Warner, and I usually sit in the back and uh, I've really been enjoying the discussions that have been going on with this group. I think we've got a great group, an awesome group. And um, I'm sad that Sidney has to uh, take a little sabbatical, but I understand it. I still consider this to be his class. We're just kind of holding the place for him while he does his thing. And then when he comes back, we will be back in full form. So in the meantime, we're having people that are just kind of filling in. And I'm excited about that, too, because I've done that a little bit before, and I realized the people who actually are up front leading, they get a great blessing by doing so, because they've got to do the homework and be prepared. And uh, I'd like to thank Dorothy and Brad Cole for being our placeholders and, and doing a great job for the past couple of weeks. And uh, Richard and I are going to do it this week, and I'll tell you a little bit more about Richard in a moment. Melissa Bratton is going to do it next week, and I saw the title, it's something about the Gospel of John explained by Dickens. And Tale of Two Cities. Uh, for some reason, I was thinking of Oliver, but maybe that's because what's his name died? This. Uh... Dagan? <laughs> no, um, that monkey boy, he died. Davy Jones. Davy Jones. And he played. He played. Uh, played one of the characters in, in the, the musical. The Artful Dodger. The Artful Dodger, that's right. And, and that's another story, you know, about uh, that Dickens <laughs> that brought to life and, and a great social uh, commentary. But we're going to hear about the, the Gospel of John in the Tale of Two Cities is written by uh, Dickens next week, so I'm looking forward to that. Me too. <laughs> so, um, we always start out with prayer, and I didn't tag anybody. So I'm going to go ahead and start out with prayer at this point in time. So if you all join me and bow your heads. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for everything that you have to offer. There's lots of things that we don't know about you. And there's things that we don't understand. And so much we just can't comprehend. But yet, yet we try and we try and we try. And we think we got it. Help us remember that we can never get it about you. You're far too awesome for us to ever understand. And our... What we get out of it is that we just get to love you. You love us back no matter what. Thank you for being with us this Sabbath day. Be with us and bless us. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. About a dozen years or so, my family and I went to Riverside Church. And uh, we had a great family there. And lots of friends. (coughs) Jeff was one of those people. His brother Christine... Uh, Paul Benedjoni, who see this in the sanctuary, second service and Sabbath, and many, many other friends are there. And um, we ended up having a diaspora, if you will, and many of us scattered all at the same time, went to different places, and a lot of us landed here. Our good friend Richard, he was part of our family down in Riverside, and, and uh, he went other places. Some people went to La Sierra and other churches in the, in the area. Um, but whenever we see each other, it's great because we get to see each other's friends, and Richard's one of those friends. Uh, Richard is an attorney like me, um, but unlike me, he's much more rounded because he's also a playwright and a composer and a screenwriter and film producer and all kinds of things. And one of the things that he did at Riverside Church when we were there is he put on this play uh, about Joe, had a script, 
head characters and, and, and actors and costumes and the whole bit. And the way it was presented at that time, and the way I'd love to see it presented again sometime if we could get everything together and the script could be relocated, uh, it was presented in either three or four acts, if you will, uh, on consecutive Sabbaths, and the, the act was presented, and then there was some discussion afterwards. Uh, here, Richard and I are going to sit down, and we're going to chat, as old friends would chat, one to another, and our topic of discussion today is going to be Joe. Richard, it's great to see you again. It's always wonderful to be with you, no matter what, and especially on Sabbath. Well, thank you, no, no matter what. You know, one of the things that uh, I remember of the great times that we had at Riverside Church was when you did the play Joe. And one of the things that's really stuck with me, I mean, we all know the play of Job, and we know how Job gets struck down and has sores all over his body, and his friends are there. I mean, that's just part of the story. But one of the things that really grabbed me from the very beginning, your opening scene, was God and Satan in heaven, and they were playing chess. When you set up your opening scene with God and Satan playing chess, just like you and I might be sitting at a table playing chess, what, what were you thinking? I think Job, first of all, as a story, Job was the real man, but his life experience was so dramatic that it entered the realm of legend immediately. Uh, there were stories told about Job. I think the first artistic incarnation of the story was a play. The essence of a any kind of a story, especially a dramatic presentation, is conflict. So when I crafted my play, and I consider myself the fourth in the line of authors on Job, because it kind of grew with every handling of the story, um, what I put into it was the chess game, which is the metaphor for the cosmic conflict that is the basis, the impetus of the action. Uh, it would dramatically represents the great game that is played throughout eternity. And toward the end, I added a scene in heaven, which is not in Job, because I think it's missing. I think we're lacking that final confrontation between God and Satan, where God decides to wrap it up. So that's why I chose the chess game as a metaphor. Well, I, I thought it worked really well for me, but uh, you know, I got to thinking about it, and it, you know, it's just not scripturally accurate. And do we have license to take things from the Bible and change it around like that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> for instance, we assign three wise men. The number three is not mentioned in the Bible in reference to the wise men, but we just impose that on it because. We have to give it a number. What are God and Satan doing in heaven? Well, Satan shows up one day, and he just says, "I'm, you know, oh, God says, where have you been? What you been up to?" Well, what didn't when Satan shows up? It's like there's like an angel convention in heaven, isn't there? Is there? Do we have license to uh, impose that on the story? Well, I mean, if you look, it's it like says a gathering of... There was an audience of some kind going on. Right. 
that uh, God is holding court, people are bringing petitions, whatever is happening there. Whatever his day is like, that's what's happening. And Satan shows up, evidently, to report on what he's been doing, or maybe it's just a social call. And God says, what have you been up to? Mind you, he doesn't say, okay, I know you. what you've been up to. He asks him, what have you been up to? Where have you been? So does that imply that God doesn't know what Satan's been up to? Or? It would imply, well, you see, that's the thing. If you look at the story, the way it plays out, God is interacting in real time. He's not simply saying, okay, I know what's going to happen, and you're just an idiot for even discussing the issue. It's a real conflict. It's a controversy. And Satan, is not, interestingly enough, is not really the one that poses it. He just says, I've been here and there, implying that he's been looking for something down here. And God says, well, have you considered my servant Job? Just out of the blue. He throws Job out there. Now, Satan's not saying, you know, can you propose somebody that might be above temptation? He just, nothing. God, God just says, okay, how about Job? Uh, I've always considered him above temptation. What do you think? And then kind of gives Satan the idea. You know, but Satan, clearly, this is his mission in life, is to test God's creation, that God created free will, and Satan is convinced in his cynicism that free will doesn't work, that it's a sham, and that Job is pious and loves God simply because God takes care of him. Well, when I, when I go to that exchange between God and Satan, that initial exchange, and, and again, I, I get this idea that there's all these heavenly beings in heaven. I was like, well, why are they there? Is it some sort of convention that they're going to? Or uh, is this a diplomatic UN mission from all the worlds coming in? There's really no ex- explanation, per se, but you know, it's rather interesting. And all these angels are there, and Satan shows up, and then there's this exchange between God and Satan, and, and God poses the question, hey, what you been up to? Yeah, I've been doing this. And then not only does God say, hey, have you considered Job? He's, he's being boastful. Hey, what do you think of that guy Job, man? Isn't he, isn't he the greatest? I mean, he's perfect. He's beyond reproach. And it's like God is boasting about Job. And, 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 and he's challenging, in my mind, God is almost challenging Satan. He's, he's mocking Satan because Satan's put up these accusations all through history. And here is a guy who not only is he Warren Buffett because he's the richest man in the land, I mean, he's the richest guy around. Who's the richest guy in our country? I mean, Warren Buffett, who owns railroads and insurance companies and furniture companies and textile companies and on and on and on, but yet he lives in a tract house in Omaha. Um, So it's like, well, God says, here, take Warren Buffett. What do you think of him? He sets up the challenge in my mind. I mean, did you see that when you were looking at that at all? Did I see Warren Buffett? No. Yeah. <laughs> did you see? Did you see God kind of mocking Satan and and uh, putting up that 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 it was kind of like trash talking almost. It, God is is uh, is very whimsical 
and uh, even elfish in, in Job because he taunts Satan, he, he needles him, and toward the end he even needles Job. He's, he's kind of winking and nodding and cajoling his way through this. God, let me back up, Job stands out as a book in the Bible because it seems to me all the other books in the Bible are about man's faith in God. Job stands alone as a book about God's faith in man. Amen. Let me give you a thumbnail of what, of what happens okay. in the review. Job is being prosperous. He's leader in his community. He's minding his own business, but he's a pious man. He's very devout. He worries about his ten kids almost neurotically. Um... He's all the time praying and trying to live a good life, a decent life, and he does. And he does. Then, for no reason at all that he can perceive, he is beset by a series of tragedies. Now, had there been just one of these tragedies in his lifetime, okay, that's the sort of thing that happens to people. But for all of these things to come one after the other within a short space of time is extraordinary. First, the Sabaeans burn his sheep up. Okay, there goes half as, half as well. The Chaldeans come down and steal his camels. Well, now he's got nothing. His kids are partying in the eldest kid's house, and the wind comes and blows it down, kills them all. It's not a house, it's a mansion. They've got the big party, they got the crystal going on. It's a rather poorly constructed mansion, <laughs> because it blows down. And, and kills them all. And kills them but all. Yeah, they're having, the Hollywood, right. they're having the Hollywood party going on, exactly. and they're all kids. And, and, and by the way, killed. this means Job is probably in his 40s, his kids are all grown up and partying, and but he worries about them. Well, now they're gone. He's left with nothing but his wife. <clears throat> Which is fine. Uh, but then Satan goes back. and go, Job copes with all this. He finds a way to cope with it. Satan goes back to God, and God rubs it in. He says, see? Told you. Job is a man who's you know above your temptation. He's, I told you he'd pass. And Satan said, a man will say or do anything to save his skin. Well, let me attack that. Then you'll see. If a man has his help, this other stuff, he can get through. Let me do that. And God said, okay, I'll let you go one step further. He's lost everything. He's got his health. Go ahead. Well, Job comes down with terrible skin disease. My guess is it was from the stress his immune system just breaks down. And he, he's in real pain and in dire straits. His wife doesn't even want to come near him. Uh, and finally tells him basically, eat dirt and die. She is a pragmatist. Well, I mean, doesn't she actually, you know, she comes at him with uh, the way I pictured is a, a jab to the left in the chin and a, and a punch in the gut saying... Uh, Job, why don't you just uh, forget about your integrity? That's that's the left of the chin, and then she punches him in the gut with curse God. Right, and, and this is his wife. This is like his closest friend, supposedly. Yes, uh, she's saying, you know, 
forget being you, forget being what you've always been, step out of character, and just have done with all this. Because what good are you? You know, you're just a burden on everybody now. So end it. You know, don't don't hold to this pact of loyalty you have to God. If you were half a man, you'd curse him to his face. And then you'd end it all, and that would be the manly thing to do. Well, Job will not be cajoled in that way. He will not be taunted into doing something that is against his character. Well, going back to what she has to say, are we to interpret that what she is suggesting that Job do something to provoke God in order to be killed for his blasphemy towards God? Either that or just to, you know, spin God's face and kill yourself just to show him. He can't push you around. Alright? Something like that. Well then, you would think that Job has hit rock bottom, but he has not. He has not. You think he's go- his wealth is gone, his kids are gone, his, his health is gone, and he's stuck with his wife. So, now what? He's got these three friends, and they come over to help him mourn, as friends should. And they sit with him in silence for seven days straight. Well, that sounds like good friends. It does. It does. It's the kind of friends we'd all like to have. Yeah, they just sit there, and they come there, and they're with you. They're they're just comforters. They're not saying anything. Exactly. They're just there with you. Yes. For an entire week. Yes. You're not alone. They're there. They're supportive. They're just there. And it's like, this is nice. You've come all this way to visit me in my affliction. No one says anything for, for a whole week. Then Job makes the mistake of opening his mouth. And basically says, uh, I'm miserable. Well, this gives them an opening. And my guess is, these friends have been watching Job be pious and prosperous for years and have resented it. Now, we're just as pious as he is. How come he's so much richer? Well, now that he's fallen on hard times... It's a feeding frenzy. And they start it immediately. His first friend, Eliphaz, is a mystic. But you say these people are like in a feeding frenzy, but these are like righteous friends. These are religious friends. And where are you getting this thing about these? They're the worst kind. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Holier than thou, mas catolico tel papa. Uh, more Catholic than the Pope. They are. No one can exceed their religiosity except Job puts them to shame and Job obviously has the approval of God which they can't get past in their universal scheme God rewards you when you're good so the more rewards you have that means you're better so they can't get past that mindset that's their universal template they obviously are well to do and they say and they hold that that to be uh, attributable to the fact that God is blessing them for being blessable, for being good, for being righteous. If their wealth is a sign of their righteousness. Well, Job is wealthier. That must mean he's more righteous. Now they're envious. It's like, okay, no, no, no. Now Job is at rock bottom. Okay. So the inverse must be true. If God has taken all this away from you, you must have done something to deserve that. Well, Job says, no, I haven't. Well, they can't accept that because that challenges their orthodoxy. And they keep hammering away at Job. 
I've said Eliphaz is the first one. He's the mystic. He says he, he's had a vision. He voices, he hears voices, and he knows what he needs to say to Job. And he tells him, you know, you need to understand that you are being punished. And Job says, no, I haven't done anything for which to be punished. Then Bildad chimes in. And Bildad is the fortune cookie. He's a walk-in fortune cookie. He is full of, of uh, parables and, and sayings. And he will just, you know, spill these things forth one after the other. Uh, he, he's the one with all the platitudes. Pl- all, platitude after platitude. Strings them like pearls. It, it, but there's really nothing deep to it. There's nothing. He's very shallow. He knows what very, to say. He but knows he, what yes. He, he's like pulling like the fortune cookies. It's just, you know, shallow, but, you know, I'll write out of the book, but he's got a, he's got a million of them. Okay? So he knows, apart. He, he knows the book. He knows the he book. He knows how to recite the book. Right. Yeah, he knows what to say. He knows all the little sour sayings. But... They're not helpful because Job is like, Job knows all of this. Job has a much deeper understanding of God than Bildad does. Much more deep and thoughtful than this mystic who's all subjective feeling. So then he answers Bildad and says, no, no, you're not helpful. Then we move on to Zophar. Zophar is the know-it-all. Now, we've all met people like this. We all have people in our lives like these people. And this is one of the universal things about Job. It's still true. We fall on hard times. These people are still going to come to visit us. And we're going to go through this. Zophar knows the character of God and is here to instruct Job as to his error in perceiving the way God is, who God is. That Job needs to understand that he is suffering because God is punishing him because that is God's character. God is just. And God would not allow you to go through this if you were not worthy of it because that would be unjust. Therefore, if you say you're innocent, that you're guiltless, you haven't done anything worth being punished for, you're reflecting on God. You have to admit to your guilt so that God may be justified. But Job knows he has not done anything wrong. And he, had, he clings to the truth. And, but the truth is offensive to these people. It's sacrilege. So now you've got sacrilege versus truth. In order for Job not to be sacrilegious, he has to admit to a lie. And they are determined to beat a confession out of him. Well, they, I mean, they, are, they end up being pretty brutal. And they're being very argumentative. But, I mean, given the idea, the prevailing thought of the day, in order to in order, if you are being punished, you must have done something wrong. That would be the orthodoxy of the day, yes. But Job says to his wife, and his wife first confronts him and says, you know, what, you're going through all this, this must, you know, what have you done? What, what's all this about? And is God such a great God that he's allowing this to happen to you? And Job says, should we receive only good at God's hands and not evil? In other words, who am I that I should expect only blessing from God? No one else lives a charmed life. Why should I? He is very humble and self-effacing. He, he knows he has this perspective, but that's not good enough for any of these people. And finally, this young guy named Elihu shows up. 
Now he is, he has the answers. He's got the new age thinking on his side. He's got the new twist on things. And he, he chews everybody out and says, you are all idiots for engaging in this theological debate in the first place. God is not knowable. You can't comment on his character because you can't know it. So stop this. This is all meaningless. And he tells to Job and says, and you need to stop it too because you can't possibly understand anything. So why, how dare you ask these questions of God or anyone else? It is presumptuous and arrogant for you to seek to understand God who is beyond understanding. Now that's a fairly convincing argument because... You know, who can argue that God is great? Well, I mean, God in the end, when we get to that point, God kind of sounds that back out to a point. I mean, who, where were you? Who are you? And, and God says, you know, I'm greater than anything that you can comprehend. But Elihu goes yes. way further with Job. Yes, he does. The difference between what God said and God... When God, and by the way, God follows Elihu immediately. Doesn't give Job a chance to answer Elihu because God is so ticked off by this time that he says, I will answer him myself. I'm going to answer these people myself. This is, we're done. And this is where I put the last scene in between God and Satan. Where Satan wants to push the envelope or step, take it a step further and God says, no, the experiment is over. And he goes down and addresses these people personally and says, okay, first of all, Job, were you around during the Big Bang? Did you set the stars in the sky? Who are you to even, to think you can understand someone who has set all of this in motion? He references Behemoth and Leviathan and says, you're a puny in comparison. Just puts Job in his place. Saying basically what Elihu said, God is great, he is huge. The difference between what Elihu says and what God says is that Elihu criticized Job for seeking to understand what is beyond understanding. God never did that. God does not criticize Job for seeking to understand, even though it's it's a task that can never be completed. We can never know as much as God knows. We can never know God entirely. But seeking to know is not evil. It is good. Well, at the end, after God sets Job in his place, and Job, by the way, God is the last, is the final test. And Job still doesn't crack. He holds to his integrity. And integrity is used several times in the book. And what it means is Job is authentic. He's true to himself. He does not drop out of character. He is still Job at the end of it. He's not going to be a phony and pretend to be someone else and adopt someone else's standards or someone else's piety. And God respects him for that. And that's what God was counting on, that Job would never stop being Job. So finally, God, after Job says, you're right, God, I, can't, I, am, I will never be able to understand everything. God thinks, okay, good enough. Turns to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and says, you people are full of hot air. You need to to shut up. And I find you three bulls and three rams, and you're going to bring them over here. 
and then you're going to ask Job what else he wants. Well, and he, God actually says, and then you're going to have your friend Job pray for me. I will accept his prayers. So you make the sacrifice, but don't bother praying to me. Have Job pray to me, and I'll accept his prayers. Yes, their, their, their frame of mind is so unacceptable to God. He says, okay, just to show you who is right, you have to come, to get to me, you have to come through Job. That's the pecking word. Okay, so they, he's really put them in their place. Then, that to me is the great satisfaction that Job achieves here. God never answers Job's question of what it was for. He never tells Job about Satan. Job has no notion of Satan. He has no idea what's going on up there. He doesn't understand he's a pawn in the great chess game. God never tells him about any of that. He just says, Job, take it from me. The answers are not going to be available. You'll never be able to understand it completely. You just, you're just not going to be able to understand it because it's too big a question. This is enough for Job. Job says, okay, I understand. I'll never be able to understand it thoroughly, but at least I understand, the, I understand what is not true. And that's something. I understand that these people are wrong. Now I have a whole universe to explore to find out what is correct. And God gives him a hundred more years to do that. Plus, he plays the country western song backwards. <laughs> gives him his truck back, gives him his dog back, gives him his kids back, etc. I think he gives him a new wife. I think the wife runs off with Bill Dad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, he's because really, you know. Well, he, he gets the children back. Yes. Um, I think he gets uh, seven sons and, and three daughters. Yep, like, like same had, as before. Like he had before. And, and uh, as a lawyer, I found it really interesting in this commentary. It said uh, he also gave his three daughters a full share of inheritance. Now, back in those days, daughters did not get inheritances. And here's Joe, and he gives every one of his children, all seven sons and each of the three daughters, he gives them an inheritance. And so I said, oh, this guy's cool. But not only does he get his cattle back, but he gets double his cattle and his sheep. So not only is he rich again, and he was when he was taken down, he was the richest man in the land. Now he's the richest man in the land again, worth double what he was before. But the, the interesting thing, we think, well, that's great. Um, but, I mean, here's a couple interesting things. Well, I guess the point that I have with regard to that, when you look at this book and you and you read it like you would a novel, the end of the book is like what an immature reader of a novel would expect. You know, we go in, we read a novel, and we want the happy ending. And and every time we want the happy ending, it's that's, that's the immature ending, as they say in literature, as opposed to the sad ending. And we get the immature ending here. I mean... Satan or uh, Job gets everything back and more. It's like, okay, that's great. But that almost seems like it's kind of proving Satan's point. Satan's point at the beginning being, God, you're going to give everything to everybody who worships you, and I can't win if everybody's in it just for the good things that you give to them. And this almost seems to go back, in my mind, because... God has blessed Job. It's it's almost proving Satan's point, is it not? 
Well, uh, the, a lot of scholarship says that the prologue and the epilogue were tacked on. That the original story is Job passes the test, but he's still down at the bottom, but he he's, doesn't lose his character, his integrity. And the wrap-up in, in the biblical book of Job, you have the epilogue saying, you know, like the scroll at the end of the movie, you know, uh, Job is now living alive and well, living in La Jolla, in his, you know, this kind of, uh, he's, he's been restored to this, to this status. Um, and yeah, it, it kind of feeds back into, well, you see, if you just hold out long enough, God's going to bless you. But life is not a system of rewards and punishments. We don't live in a Skinner box where if we just do the maze right, we'll get the piece of cheese. It doesn't always work that way. Job himself says, good people fall on hard times. And bad people prosper, they're wealthy, they're powerful. And this is obvious when you observe life. The problem with all these people that are trying to counsel Job is they detach their theology from reality. They detach it from, they won't let life instruct their theology. They know that evil people are in seats of power, and that evil people have lots of money, and they know that good people sometimes are very poor, or in very bad circumstances, or have been sold into slavery, or are working in the Roman galleys, or whatever hard times they've fallen into. They've been punished unfairly by life. It's not Calvinism where what you have is a sign of God's pleasure or displeasure. It's just that life happens. Stuff happens to people, and there's no system of rewards and punishments. Well, that, I mean, that's what Job says. And his, his response about, you know, the evil people are blessed and they live long lives, that response was in response to one of his comforter friends saying, hey, Job, Obviously, you've done something wrong here. Otherwise, you wouldn't be cursed like this because if you wouldn't be cursed, everything would be good. And Job says, well, hold on a second here. There's lots of evil people out there in the world who are blessed. So how can you say that I did something wrong um, and therefore I'm being cursed because there are evil people out there. We know these are evil people out there and they're being blessed. So that's Job's response to your, your theology is not making any sense to me here. And their response is simply more theology. They never answer, respond to Job's question because that, that's an argument. That's, that's logic. That's reason. They don't dwell in reason. They dwell in orthodoxy, in doctrine. And they, and they keep coming back to the doctrine. Okay, you didn't hear, maybe you weren't listening when I said it the first time. God is just. God will not do anything unjust. God controls everything. What is happening to you is under God's control. Therefore, what is happening to you is just. How can you argue with that? Don't bring me in examples of from life. Just stick to the theology. And, and if you challenge the theology, then you're blaspheming, you're sacrilegious. See, you're a bad person. Just because logic is sinful is basically what they're saying. I, um, I, how many of you have uh, read Job uh, with in, in any time in 2012? No hands. How many? Oh, wait. <laughs> so, 
We've got a few people, and, and who, uh, setting aside the last uh, 25 minutes, um, how many of you have read Job within the past year? And how many of you feel like, uh, how many of you feel like you're getting a different perspective today from what you've heard before? They've heard it. They've heard it all before. Um, I, I've read it in several different versions, and I find the different versions very interesting, and, and there are a lot of questions in there. And But going back to just a, a point that was made a few moments ago, you know, Job is kind of reminiscing, and, you know, I think this is where it's kind of grounded uh, to a certain degree. When Job is reminiscing, what he is missing is the simplicity of life, and all he's asking for, he, he's really not asking for a return of his wealth. He's not asking for uh, a return uh, of his, his health. He says, I, I'm seeking wisdom. I want wisdom. And I felt like I had it before, and now I'm really confused. And if I can get back to these simpler times when I thought I had wisdom, and if it, things weren't so confusing and I had that wisdom, then things would be really good. God, give me that wisdom. And that I think that that's what he's really searching for, is, is the wisdom. And I, I guess another thing that I see, what I personally see is, I see Job actually getting angry with God. I see him shouting at God and saying, God, tell me the answer. I don't know, Richard, do you see any anger there? No. What I see and what I would expect you to perceive as an attorney is that through the whole book, Job only asks for one thing, and that's to confront his accuser and to have his day in court, which he does. God grants him that favor. Fine. By letting him plead his case. That's all he's asked. He just, he just isn't saying, look, I, I want to uh, undo anything. I want to challenge God. I want to denounce him. I just want to defend myself so that whatever happens to me, people will know I'm innocent. I want to simply proclaim my innocence, not to condemn God. God gives him that platform. And in the end, that's really what it's about. Uh, God says, okay, Job is a righteous man. This is what a righteous man looks like. And that's my point. I think that's the point of Job. Well, up, up until the point where God finally appears in the whirlwind or the storm, Job's going through this Kafka's period where, you know, like in, in Kafka's book, the, the Trial, a man's put on trial, and he knows he's on trial, but he doesn't know what the charges are against him. He doesn't know who his accuser is. He just, and he doesn't know what the crime is. He's just on trial. And that's the way Job is feeling in this. And that's where I'm getting the point where Job is angry. And I don't see that God has condemned or castigated Job for being angry. When God comes back, and you're right, God seems almost whimsical and elfish and playful with him. And these are like human terms as to how we might describe what we're observing but God says look you've asked all the questions now let me ask the questions 
You tell me the answer. Were you there? Can you do this? You know, I can put a leash on the Leviathan. And, and when we're talking about the Leviathan and the behemoth, and they're described in the book of Job, and I'm going, whoa, where did these mythical characters come from? And, and you know, it's like, Job seems to know what God's talking about. It's like, well, this is kind of interesting. And boy, that behemoth sounds like a dinosaur. Was that around? Who knows? And 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 the uh, and the Leviathan sounds like a, you know, a real super wild version of the Ogopoga. Yes, it is the Ogopoga. That's cool. Who knows about the Ogopoga? Nobody knows. Okay, shaking it. Who knows about uh, Nessie? Like, yeah, Loch Ness monster. Okay, Loch Ness monster. Well, we've we've got our own North American version of of, of Nessie, and it's up in the Okanagan Lake, just right out there outside the lake where my grandmother lived up there Which, in, people, British, in British Columbia. People have seen this serpent in the lake. Yeah, you understand it's wine country. <laughs> it is now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in, in, in Job, you know, God describes this horrible sea creature with scale, scales and it breathes fire and he, he breathes and he sets things on fire and he's scraping up stuff and he'll cause a storm in the middle of the sea and put great weights behind him and he's got triple and double row. I forget, I mean, huge masses of teeth and smoke bellowing out. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dragon in the water. It's a water dragon described in Job. And God says... I'll put a leash on that thing. Can you do that, Job? Yes, sir. God, God finally says that Job said what is right about him. Can you summarize what Job said about God that was right? Oh. Well, right. Uh, I interpret that to mean Job has not said anything wrong. That all of... All of his answers have been correct. That people should expect to receive both good and bad at God's hands. And God is, is just, but his justice is not always perceivable by us. That God is not um, you know, the, the, the scientist on the Skinner box that's going to start rewarding us and punishing us until we get it right as his friends believe because that makes them look good I think God I think Job has the right notion of God's character and God has always represented that I can't cite anything specific that God might be referring to if that's what you're saying that there's some one thing that where Job hits it on the nose um, well uh, unless it's this unless it's this which is a verse you may recognize. In chapter 19, verse 25, he says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And though my body be consumed, yet in the flesh shall I see God. And that happens. It happens within Job's lifetime, which I'm sure he never anticipated because he thought he was going to die the next day. But it actually happens. Uh, and I think that is an indication that Job understands God, and these other people, no one else, has any notion of what God is like, but Job does. Does that well, keep never, in the mark? God never tells Job about Satan. Never does. 
Job, as far as we know, has no notion of Satan. I think this is a Hebrew... Uh, this is what... When it was transcribed into Hebrew, they said, okay, we need to explain the cosmic significance of Job's story. So they put in the scenes in heaven. They said, okay, this must be what took place. God and Satan have made this wager, as it were. This is a test case to prove, because Satan, in his cynicism, believes that free will is a sham, and that the reason that people are pious and good and righteous is because God has manipulated the data. He's manipulated the, the experiment. And if you actually allow free will to operate under severe circumstances, it'll fall apart. And God answers him saying, go ahead and put it to the test. But without the heaven scenes, we don't have that context. But your analogy of a chess game sort of feeds into denying free will. The comment was made that the, the analogy of a chess game suggests the denial uh, of free will. We're just pawns in the chess game. We are pawns in the chess game, but we have free will. Uh, I see what you're saying. The, the analogy of the chess game suggests that God can move us wherever he wants, which is true. But when we, what we do when we get there is our decision. And that's, that's where the analogy would break down. Uh, it's more like wizard chess in Harry Potter where the pieces get up and move of their own. Uh, I think Melissa had it. Is it Melissa? I think the thing that has always puzzled me about the story of Job is, you know, if he did say what was right, then why was it that God had to come in the whirlwind, the whirlwind and sort of question him and, uh, as you kind of put it, put him in his place? Um, if anybody can address that, that would be great. Glad you asked that. There, I have two answers to that. First of all, in order to understand the relationship that Job had with God and God had with Job, I think you have to understand that God respected Job. That's essential. Remember, Job has integrity. It's That word is used so many times throughout that book. The first thing that God says to Job is, pull yourself together, man. Stand up Time for, to answer some tough questions that I'm going to put to you. This is how you treat someone that you know is going to be able to man up. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is basically the way guys relate to each other, mm-hmm. is we say, okay, stand up to this. Uh, this is a, a great, you know, he's not pitying Job. He's not babying him. He's not condemning him. Not condemning him. He's just saying, okay, okay, man, pull yourself together, let's talk, let's talk business here. And now let's see what kind of answers you can come up with. And he's putting him to the test like a teacher would pick on the prize student, the one that they know is excellent, and challenge that student. So this is God's challenge to Job, but it's an intellectual challenge. And he's saying, okay, figure this one out. You're not as big as I am. You're not as tough as I am. You weren't there at the beginning. You didn't do any of this stuff. How do you presume to understand any of this stuff? And Job understands at that point, it's not that I have missed something, that I have not diligently searched and have somehow fallen down in my uh, scholarship or there's an error in my thinking. There are just some things that are beyond my reach. 
that I haven't quite attained yet, and I understand I can study my entire life and never understand everything I need to understand. And I think that's what God is telling Job. I liked your comment earlier that the last trial was really to be forsaken even by God. It almost seemed like Job even endured um, you know, loss of everything, then his three friends, and then finally even God almost seems to suggest that, that he's against him also. And, uh, you know, at least it, many, most people seem to read it that way, but uh, it seems like if you're Satan, after God even comes and seems to go against Job, what case does he have left? Because now Job didn't even let God down, even after that. And so it uh, almost seems kind of like Jesus on the cross. You know, why have you forsaken me? It's you reached complete bottom, but yet still not, you know, rebelling and, and, and going against God. And, and I was also just interesting to, interested to hear how you finished the story in heaven. Uh, you, you said there's a little part that isn't there that you want to add. Yes. Uh, well, first I want to. Uh, there's a two-part there, so I want to okay. refer to the first part first. Uh, God's challenge to Job. And we've seen it in a lot of literature and a lot of movies where unexpectedly the guy will start you know, beating up on, on, on the guy, calls him into his office, starts hammering away at him, trying to break him down, or offers him a bribe. And the guy stands up to it and says, well, no, 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 I'm, I'm not changing my mind. And you know, the boss man says, good. Good, now I know I can trust you. you I, I, I've told you, you're, you're a worm in my sight, you're not around when I founded the universe, you're nothing, you're, you, know, you, you can't hope to understand anything, are you still going to be Job? And Job says, uh, yeah, I am. And God says, okay. Now I believe you. If you're going to stand up even to that, even to my challenge, I know that you are never going to change. You're always going to be you. And that's the way I like you. The second part was about the last scene in heaven that I tacked in onto the action. Uh, I, I must believe that, by the way, there are a few chapters in Job that are kind of out of order, that if you read through it, things kind of quit flowing. Um, and there are some omissions some truncated parts, things, a few seem to be gaps. And I think one of the gaps is there probably was a final scene in heaven where God tells Satan this, the experiment is over. And, and if it were a final scene, Satan would have to, in order to push the envelope further, he would have to say, okay, let me drive him nuts. Let me push him over the edge. Then you'll see. Let me get inside his brain. And God says, no, that's not fair. You can't do it. Because I think God understands, and we should all understand, what, and what our, our, our service people, our military people are told is, if the North Koreans get a hold of you, whoever gets a hold of you, you will crack eventually. You will crack. Your job is simply to hold on as long as you can but they will subject you to the water torture, they will subject you to sleep deprivation, eventually you will crack, because physio physiologically, you're not going to be able to stand up to it. All you can hope to do is hold out for as long as you can. And I think God understands that if Satan subjects him to some kind of phys sophisticated physiological, psychological torture, 
Job will break down completely and will become a quivering mass of jelly. But God's not going to let him do that because then God loses Job. Well, that's, that's outside the realm of free will then, too. Right. That's where you rob the person of any will at all. They're, they're, they are so now disoriented and diffused that their consciousness is reduced to the point where you no longer, in legal terms, have capacity. Right. And that's where that's a step too far. You can't win that way. In other words, you can't win the football game by shooting the quarterback. I just wanted to comment one of uh, Elias's here. Uh, what he says, he says, um, why God does not even trust his angels, even they are not pure in his sight. And so God... Tr- Who says that? This Elias in... Um, Elias. Yes, Elias. And... Uh, that you know, God not trusting anyone, that was, it seems like perhaps one of Satan's accusations as well. And God seems to, throughout the Bible, have a burden to try to prove that there are some friends that are trustworthy. For example, with Moses, um, when he asks Moses, or, uh, when he says, you know, I, I will destroy these Israelites, your people, um, and I will make of you a great nation. And it almost seems like he's testing Moses to, uh, to you know, his trustworthiness. As he, Moses, test, as he tested Abraham. As he tested Abraham, yes, that's, that's right. Um, uh, and, and Moses passes the test. And also in the New Testament, when Jesus is the woman who, who wants to be healed, and uh, the disciples, this is, this is a woman who is... Uh, is a Gentile woman, and the disciples, you know, want her to go away. And Jesus almost plays, plays, and, and, and yes. acts like yes. he portrays the attitude of the disciples and says, "Well, let us first feed the children of Israel. It isn't right to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs." Uh, portraying the attitude of the disciples, and then he switches and he calls her a woman of great faith. So God seems to do that throughout the Bible proving that people are trustworthy. Right, and he's testing her understanding. He said, well, now, wait a minute. You're not a Jew. Why should I heal you? Shouldn't I be working with these people first? And she gives a very humble response. She doesn't say, in a, she doesn't portray a sense of entitlement. She could have. She could have said, well, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. She says, well, yeah, but I was just kind of hoping that you might have had something left over for me. See, it's the response. It's that response. That's, that's where God is waiting for that. How are we going to fashion that response? Amen. Well, I, I, I see that in Job, too. And it, and it comes back to Job's angry, and he, in, in my mind, he's angry, and he's shouting out God. He's like, I didn't want an answer. You know, something's going on here. Tell me what's going on. And then God shows up and says, answer these questions. And then Job... So he, he totally humbles himself to God. And all his responses are humble, just like this lady that we talked about. And I think God does not like arrogance. He's not going to go for arrogance. But Job does the right thing, and he, he totally humbles himself to God. And he, he's, he's always been a humble man. Um, but he's been made angry in my mind, and he's shouting out those his answers. And God comes back, and, and Job is the person that he is. 
He's the person of integrity, and part of that integrity is humbleness. But now, God has actually come to him and said, okay, here I am. And, and I think that Job's like, alright God, that's all I wanted. I wanted you to recognize me. I didn't want to be alone. And I felt like I was alone, and now here you are. And that's where he's humble. I want to just add a couple things. Um, it is not a sin to ask questions. That is not arrogance. His friends tell him it is. God says it's not. Job has a right to ask questions. Remember the word Israel means wrestles with God. Uh, ask any Jew. He will tell you exactly the significance of that. You get to wrestle with God. You get to ask the questions. You get to engage in that, that uh, forensic dialogue by which you hope to understand something that you don't understand. It's okay to do that. It's okay to ask, to put the tough questions. God isn't delicate. He's not sugar that's going to melt in water. And he expects us not to be either. There were some things that happened this past week. Tornadoes ripped through the heart of our country. And it's, it's devastating to see, you know, you get this narrow swath several miles long, businesses and homes and lives and everything destroyed. And I was watching TV, I think, Thursday night of what happened the day before. And they talked to lots of different people. And then they brought on the talking head and uh, the anchor says, well, what's, the, you know, what's significant about this tornado that you haven't seen before? And I go, you know, this talking head's not going to tell us what's significant. He's going to go off on some other tangent, and he did. He talked about, well, you know, the storm came through and whatnot. What the significance was is all these people that they talked to, and they were on camera, and they were standing in front of driveways with a car sitting there and a foundation where their house used to be. And they were talking about God person after person after person. God watched over me. They took care of me. And God was there and saved me. And we were scared, but God was there for us. And the one that struck me most significantly was his mother who was there in front of her daughter's car, because that was all that's left. Her 22-year-old daughter, beautiful, blonde, young girl, who was a nurse who taught with her mother in Sunday school class every Sunday. They found the girl's body a few blocks away, beaten and battered, dead. And this mother, she put her strength in God. And she was strong. As a, Job exists today. People go through the trials of Job today. And I was like, could I be a Job? Is it possible for me to be a Job? There are people who are Jobs. They're here with us today. And in looking at this, the story of Job is a story of faith. And like Richard said, God has faith in man. And obviously, Job had faith in God. It's like, where are you? But God has faith in us. And that's comforting enough, too. So, there's lots of things that uh, I want to go on and talk about and discuss, but we're at the end here. Uh, thank you all for being here, and uh, have a happy Sabbath.